following is a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more information on Shaw, for our teaching resources, visit www.shaw.org.nz. This morning we are carrying on in chapter 2 of James, and Michael Staveley is going to come and read the passage for us this morning. Thank you, Michael. It's verse 14 to 26. Um, what, what good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but does, not, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by my deeds. You believe that there is one God. Good. Even the demons believe that. And shudder. You foolish person. Do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? What was, what was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together. And his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. And he was called God's friend. You see that a person is considered righteous by what they do, and not by faith alone. In the same way, was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction. As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. Great. Thanks, Michael. I don't know whether any of you are into uh, the Babylon Bee. Anyone, anyone into that website? It's a great website of uh, Christian satire. And it's, there's some funny stuff. Maybe it just appeals to my sense of humor. But I saw this great... It's all just made-up stuff, but it's uh, pretty funny. I saw this headline recently in the Babylon Bee. New Bible with perforated pages announced. And here's an extract of the article. Zondervan Publishing announced on Tuesday a new Bible with micro-perforated, completely removable pages. Don't like some of the heavy-handed calls to repentance, whether in the New Testament or Old? Now you can just rip that page right out, a representative for the publisher said. Zondervan further claimed that internal tests showed a massive improvement in the devotional lives of users of the Bible, who reported that they enjoyed the Word of God more than ever. People are far more likely to pick up their Bible if they know it's not going to convict them of their sin, make them uncomfortable, or confront their faulty thinking on an issue. The NIV perforated Bible makes that dream into a reality. <laughs> oh, that's good stuff. That's funny, uh, but it's also kind of close to home when we come to this passage in James, because I think if there were perforated Bibles out there, uh, James chapter 2, verse 14 to 26, might be one of those passages that some people were kind of tempted to rip out of their Bible. You might not see it uh, just reading it through or hearing it read as we have, but this is one of the most controversial passages in the Bible. It's a passage that cause, causes and has caused Christians a lot of consternation. It's caused a lot of controversy. It's caused a lot of angst because people find this a very jarring kind of passage and struggle to reconcile this with some other passages in the New Testament where there seems to be this contradiction. And so it is one of those passages that kind of gets a bit neglected or forgotten or that people would rather wasn't there. It's one of those passages I wish this wasn't in the Bible, you know. Uh, if you remember last year, we did that series on the Reformation 
We talked about Martin Luther. Remember that? Well, I think if perforated Bibles had been around in Luther's day, he probably would have ripped this one out. I mean, Luther had a bit of a problem with James uh, in general. He wasn't a huge fan of this book of the Bible. He called it an epistle of straw. Uh, he didn't write it off completely, but he didn't have it. He really relegated James to a pretty low level within the canon of Scripture. And the primary reason for that, the primary reason that Luther struggled with James was this passage, because he could not reconcile this passage with other parts of the New Testament, particularly some of Paul's letters. And, uh, and we'll look at that. And the controversy really comes down to these statements that James makes about the relationship between faith and works. This is what we're going to look at. This relationship between faith and works, you've probably heard those terms before, but James makes some pretty interesting statements about this stuff. The most striking one of them, I think, is in verse 24. If you just have a look at that. He says, you see that a person is considered righteous by what they do and not by faith alone. You can just about hear the perforated page being torn out of Luther's Bible at this point. I mean, what on earth is James saying here? That we're not considered righteous? By faith alone. You think of the Reformation, one of the great rallying cries of the Reformation was sola fide, faith alone. We're saved by faith alone, apart from anything that we do. There's no works we can add to our salvation. There's no human effort. It's faith alone, through Christ alone, by grace alone. Luther championed that. The Reformers worked tirelessly to embed those doctrines in the life of the church. And now here's James, the brother of Jesus, with the audacity to claim that we are not considered righteous by faith alone, but by what we do. And you can just see Luther rolling in his grave over this kind of stuff because it seems to undermine this fundamental doctrine that we are saved by faith alone. It sounds like James is saying we're saved by works. We're saved by deeds, not by faith. What's going on here? Well, it, it gets even worse, to be honest, when you put this next to what the Apostle Paul says. And this is why Luther had such, a, such trouble with James, because it sounds so contradictory to some statements that Paul makes, particularly in the book of Romans. Romans 3.28 would be the key example. Paul says, For we maintain that a person is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. That sounds like it's exactly the opposite of what James just said. Paul is saying we're justified by faith apart from works. James is saying, no, no, we're justified by what we do, not by faith alone. And this is what led Luther and others just to say there, there are differences here that are irreconcilable. That's what he believed. In fact, Luther threw down the gauntlet on this, and he said, if anyone can reconcile James and Paul on this issue, I'll give them my doctor's beret, my doctor of theology, beret. And as far as I know, Luther kept that beret his whole life. He didn't give it away. So in his mind, these were irreconcilable differences between Paul and James, and this is just a flat-out contradiction, and we have to deal with it. So what are we going to do with that? Well, I thought this morning I would try and earn Luther's beret, <laughs> very humbly, uh, that I think James and Paul are not contradictory I think what they're saying is far more complementary than we often realize, and I think Luther knew it too. And I'll read you some quotes from Luther in a little while that show that. Uh, I remember when I was in high school being part of the debating team, 
and I really enjoyed debating. One of the things with uh, a debate is you have a moot statement and you have an affirming team and an opposing team. And the job of the first affirmative speaker in, in debating is to define the terms of the moot. And it's a key job. You've got to define the, the key terms in the moot statement because if you don't, you can get a long way down the track in a debate and you realize actually these two groups, they're kind of talking past each other because they haven't defined their terms carefully enough. Uh, and, and one team's defined terms and concepts this way, another one's defined it this way, and so they're talking at cross purposes. It's not even a proper debate. So early on, you've got to define and agree on the key terms and statements in the moot. And I think that's a large part of the problem with Paul and James. They are using the same words, words like faith, words like works, words like justified, and they're using the same vocabulary, but not always the same dictionary. Uh, they have ways of using these words with different emphases and different nuance and different flavor because of the context that they're writing into. And it's hugely important that we appreciate that, that they're using these words in different ways, and that explains what seem to be some apparent differences to us. So let's see if we can untangle all of this, shall we? First of all, let's look at what James says about faith. Really, this whole passage is about faith. What James is wanting to do, he's wanting to tell us, he's wanting to describe to us a biblical view of faith. What does it mean to have true, genuine, living faith? Because he's dealing with a group of people that had a very inadequate understanding of faith. And so he wants to say, here's what real faith looks like. And faith, for James, has two dimensions to it. Equally important parts of faith. The first dimension of faith is belief or trust. And this simply means to believe in God, to believe in the gospel, to believe that Christ died for your sins, and to place your trust in Christ as Savior, Christ as your Savior, that you trust what He has done for you on the cross in taking your sin upon Himself, and you trust in Him and accept His forgiveness for your sin. To believe that He has done that for you and place the full weight of your trust in Christ, you receive forgiveness of sin. That's a vital part of faith. If you're a Christian here this morning, you've done that. You've, that's saving faith. You can't be a Christian without doing that. That's an essential part of what faith is, and it's, it's an, an incredibly important step in becoming a follower of Jesus. Belief and trust. But that's not all. Sometimes that's the only part of faith that we, we think about. But for James, there's another dimension of faith. There's a second dimension of faith, and this is surrender. Surrendering to Christ as Lord. Because the same Jesus, who is our Savior is also Lord. And we can't, or we shouldn't, surrender to Christ or trust Christ as our Savior without also being willing to surrender to Him as our Lord. And this involves simply bringing our life to Jesus, handing it to Him and saying, I'm yours. I lay my life down. I hand my life over. We bring our life into submission to Christ. We bring our life under the Lordship of Jesus. We hand our life over to Him, in a sense. And that is an equally important part of what faith is about. So faith means having a faith in Christ as both Savior and Lord. Can't have one without the other, or it's not true, genuine, biblical faith. That's how James is seeing it. That's the, that's the idea. And then, if you have this faith, if you have genuine, true faith, and you have faith in Christ as Savior and Lord, the natural result of that... James is saying, is deeds 
what he calls deeds, or another translation is works. Some of your older translations will say works. It's the same Greek word underneath. Don't worry about that. The, the result of genuine faith is that we live a life where we express that faith in action. We put our faith into action. Because if a person's surrendered their life to Christ, the natural result of that is then we bring the various parts of our life under the lordship of Jesus, and we allow him to actually change us. We allow him to transform it. We actually live out our faith. We put our faith into practice, and it starts to bear fruit, and our life starts to change, and we have these deeds or these works. Deeds, for James, are just all the practical expressions of the Christian life. He's got a pretty broad view of this, all the various things that, that would express our faith. Deeds of, of love, mercy, justice, compassion, all the fruit of the Spirit, all the spiritual disciplines, all that's involved in what James is thinking of with deeds. And he's simply saying, these deeds, these things that we do, this life that we live, our, our, our journey of obedience, it's a natural result of submitting to Christ as Lord. It's an outflow of our faith. It's a natural result of our faith. So for James, there's a very positive relationship between faith and deeds. That deeds are just simply the natural result of our faith. They're not enemies. They're not opponents at all. Our faith is just manifest in deeds because that's what it means to genuinely surrender our lives to Jesus as we then allow him to live out his life through us. We put our faith into action. Now, James in this passage is dealing with a bunch of people who have only a one-sided view of faith. They've only got half of faith. And you see this, by the way, he talks about them. He says in verse 16, uh, verse 15 rather, Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, Go in peace, keep warm and well-fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? So he's dealing with people here who have, they have the belief and trust side of faith, although it's dubious as to whether they even have trust, really. They definitely have belief, though. They believe in God, they believe in the gospel, they believe in Christ as Savior, but they have not truly surrendered their lives to Christ as Lord. And as a result, they've got no deeds. As a result, they've got their faith not being put into action at all, to the point that they could just wish someone well and do nothing about their physical needs. What that reveals is that they didn't have a genuine faith to begin with. They had half a faith. They had the belief side, sure, but they'd not really surrendered to Christ. And that's obvious because there was no fruit, no transformation, no willingness to actually live out the Christian life at all. It reveals this half faith, this anemic kind of faith. And James says, if that's what you've got, if you've just got a belief, if all you've got is belief, that's a dead faith. That's a dead faith. I mean, maybe by some definition it's still faith, You've, you've agreed with certain truths, you've ticked a box, you believe certain things, but really, if there's no surrender to Christ as Lord, and there's no evidence of this in your life, it's just a dead faith. And that he goes even further and says, verse 19, you believe there is one God, good, even the demons believe that, and shudder. In other words, even the demons have that much faith. Even the demons have belief. They believe in the gospel. They know the truth of the gospel. They believe in Jesus. They believe Jesus as Savior. They know that's true. That's what makes them shudder. But they certainly don't have faith in the fullest sense because they haven't surrendered to Christ as Lord. They despise Jesus. They don't want to surrender to Jesus. But if faith is just believing, well, then you've got as much faith as the demons, James says. But that's not what faith is. Faith is, is belief and trust, yes, but also surrender. And then that surrender is expressed in a life of obedience. Not perfection, 
but a life where we seek to allow Jesus to live out his life within us and transform us over time to reflect his character. So James has got a positive view of faith and works. He says if you've got genuine faith, it's going to lead to works. It's going to lead to deeds. Over time, it's going to express itself in your life. And he's emphasizing that surrender dimension of faith because he's dealing with people that are undermining it, undermining Christ as Lord. They're not truly submitted to Christ as Lord. Now, this becomes a bit clearer when you look at the way Paul uses these terms. I want to set the way James sees all this next to the way Paul sees all of this. Now, Paul, I think, would agree with this definition of faith, that faith involves both belief, trust in Christ as Savior, and a surrender to Christ as Lord. I think he would be right on board with that. But Paul was writing into a context where people were undermining Christ as Savior. He's writing into a different set of circumstances, especially in Romans and Galatians and Philippians. He's writing into situations where people are saying, if you want to become a Christian, if you truly want to be saved, you need to also keep these various works of the law. You need to keep these works of the Jewish law. You need to keep the dietary requirements. You need to keep the Sabbath rules. You need to keep all the ritual purity rules. And only if you keep all these rules, effectively becoming Jewish, then you can truly become a Christian. So it's basically Jesus plus, 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 plus. It's Christ and then adding on all these other things that you've, you've got to do and got to be. And Paul says, no, we're not adding anything to the sufficiency of Jesus as Savior. There is no work, there is no deed that is going to improve your standing or make you more acceptable to God. It is only by faith that you are saved. And so Paul emphasizes the belief and trust side of faith. That's what's being eroded in his context. He wants his, his, his people to understand you've got to place your faith only in Jesus. He is the only Savior. All these other things aren't going to cut it. Christ alone can save you. It's grace alone. It's faith alone. It's not by anything that we do. So he's emphasizing all of that. It doesn't mean that he didn't believe in the surrender part of faith. He did. I mean, Paul talks in Romans about the obedience that comes from faith. He clearly believed that faith leads to action, that faith leads to deeds, that faith leads to obedience. He believed that faith involves surrender. It's just that he's dealing with people who are undermining Christ as Savior, so that's the side he's working on. That's what he's emphasizing, and he wants to emphasize trust in Christ alone. Believe, put the full weight of your life in Jesus alone, not these other works of the law. So when Paul gets to talking about deeds and works, he's using a more nuanced definition than James is. James just talks about deeds as all these works, these deeds of the Christian life. Paul is more specifically talking about works of the Jewish law, specific works of the law, the works of the Torah that people are doing to try and earn some kind of standing with God, try and increase their standing with Him or, or try and, and become properly, fully Christians, and, and these things that are being imposed on them. And that's why Paul has a much more negative view of the relationship between faith and works, because he's saying there's no deeds, there's no works that can ever add to your standing before God, that can ever add to your salvation. He would absolutely agree that deeds should be the natural outworking of the Christian life, but they don't add to our salvation. They don't add to the sufficiency 
of what Jesus has done for us. And this is where people get confused reading James and Paul because James seems to be tying faith and works together. Paul seems to see them as enemies. But it's because they're dealing with different contexts. Paul's dealing with people who are undermining Jesus as Savior. James is dealing with people who are undermining Christ as Lord. And so that relationship for them between faith and works does look different. It's because they're dealing with different contexts. They're dealing with different people, with different issues. And so this brings us to that controversial verse in James where he says in verse 24, you see that a person is considered righteous by what they do and not by faith alone. That phrase, considered righteous, it's the same as the word justified. In some of your translations may say justified. It means to be declared righteous, to be declared to have right standing with God. Both James and Paul use it that way. So it sounds like what James is saying is that a person is declared righteous by what they do, by their works. But hopefully if you can see James's thought process, you realize that he's not saying works are the basis of our salvation. He's saying works are the evidence of our salvation. It's a bit like, if you see this chair up here, if, if uh, I said to you, do you have faith that this chair will hold your weight? And you said to me, yes, 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 I have faith. I have absolute faith that this chair will hold me. I have absolute confidence. I have absolute trust that this, faith will, uh, this chair will hold my weight. And then I say to you, okay, so go ahead and sit on it. And you said, oh, no, 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 I don't want to do that. No, I'm not prepared to do that. No, I believe it'll hold my weight. I believe it'll hold me. I, I, I'm not going to sit on it, though. That's, that's too far. Well, you've shown that you don't really have faith. You've shown that you, don't, you didn't really have genuine faith or trust in that chair to begin with. Because the evidence that you did would have been to sit on the chair. That's how you demonstrate you've got faith in the chair. And it's like James is looking at two people, one sitting on the chair, one standing beside the chair, and he's saying, well, who's the one with real faith? Who's the one that's truly justified? Yes, we are justified by faith. Yes, we're declared righteous by faith. But who's the one who's got faith? It's not the one standing beside the chair. It's not the one just saying they've got faith. It's not the one just giving lip service to it. It's the one who's sitting on the chair. It's the one who's put the full weight of their life on that chair in trust and surrender to Christ. So James is saying it's not that works are the basis of our salvation. It's not that deeds are the basis of our salvation. But they show whether we've got genuine faith to begin with. Because honestly, if, if you've got absolutely nothing to show for your faith, if for you it's just your faith is just kind of believing in something, or just ticking a box, or just this prayer that you prayed decades ago, and it's had no effect on your life. It's had no real impact on your life at all. There's been no real change, no real transformation, nothing. And your faith is not translated into action at all. There's something wrong with your faith, isn't there? That lack of works, that lack of fruit in your life is a sign. Something's wrong with your faith. Somehow. Perhaps you have not truly surrendered to Christ as Saviour and Lord. And if that's true, if you, if you don't gen, have genuine faith to begin with, James says, you're not justified. You're not just, you can't be declared righteous if you don't have genuine faith. So he's not saying that works are what get us there, but he's saying that works give the evidence of whether we have genuine biblical faith. And funnily enough, ironically enough, 
I think it's actually Luther who does the best job of explaining what James is talking about. Even though he struggled with James, I'm sure they're getting on well now in heaven, having a, having a beer in heaven. In Luther's case, probably a lot of beers. But uh, he, he explains what James is talking about this way. Faith is a living, restless thing. It cannot be inoperative. We are not saved by works, but if there be no works, there must be something amiss with faith. Now that sounds a lot like James. Luther wouldn't admit it, but that sounds an awful lot like what James is saying. Faith is living and active. It's not the static and sterile ticker box kind of thing. It expresses itself. And in, in this uh, famous quote of Luther's, he says, we are saved by faith alone, but faith is never alone. That's a good one to remember. We are saved by faith alone, but the faith that saves us is never alone. If it's truly faith, if it's genuine faith in Christ as both Saviour and Lord, it will express itself in a life of journeying towards Jesus and allowing him to live out his life through us. So I don't know whether you think that's earned Luther's beret, uh, but I think there is a way of reconciling Luther and Paul. Sometimes we see them, uh, James and Paul, sometimes we see James and Paul as enemies, you know, as if they're kind of facing each other, fighting with each other like this. But I think a better way to see James and Paul is that they're comrades in ministry. And they were. I mean, they knew each other. They met together. Uh, they were working on the same team. But that they are comrades and they're standing back to back, facing their opponents, different opponents. James is dealing with people who are undermining the sufficiency of Christ as Lord. Paul is dealing with people who are undermining the sufficiency of Christ as Saviour. And so they are using the same words, but they're using them in different ways because they're speaking into different contexts. Okay, now that's the theological foundation of what James is saying and reconciling this with other passages in the New Testament. But what does all this mean? What does all this look like in our lives? How do we have a living faith? How do we prevent ourselves from having a, just a dead faith and have this kind of faith James is calling us to that is alive and vibrant and living and active? Well, let me give you two examples of what genuine faith looks like, one ancient and one modern. The ancient example is one that James gives. He gives the example of Abraham. And it, in some ways, this is an unlikely example because Paul uses Abraham as well in some different ways. But, but here's what James says in verse 21. Was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? So James is thinking back to that story. Some of you may know it in the Old Testament where Abraham offers Isaac and almost takes the life of his own son. That God calls Abraham to offer Isaac as a sacrifice. Horrendous thing for any parent to be asked to do, but this is the test of faith that God gives to Abraham. He says, are you willing to offer the life of your own son to me? God had already made these promises to Abraham, and Abraham had already believed those promises, but now God calls him to surrender. Surrender the thing that is most valuable to him, his own son. And Abraham at this point doesn't say, oh, well, God, I believe in you. Isn't that enough? He doesn't say, God, I trust you, and I trust your promises. Isn't that enough? No, he picks up some firewood and he picks up a knife and he takes his son up Mount Moriah and they get to the top and he puts Isaac on the altar and raises the knife above his head and is fully willing to go through with that act when God intervenes and calls him to stop because God never intended him to take the life of Isaac but wanted to see, 
what kind of faith Abraham had. Is this just a belief faith, Abraham? Or is it a faith? Is it genuine faith that translates into surrender, translates into action? That's the kind of faith Abraham had. That's why James says, verse 22, you see that his faith and his actions were working together and his faith was made complete by what he did. It's our actions that complete or fulfill the faith, that show whether we've got true faith to begin with. And I think there's a huge challenge in that story of Abraham and Isaac for us around what kind of faith we have, whether we just have this faith. I mean, you can sing a song like that one we sung earlier, my soul, Lord, to you surrendered, all I have is yours. Big words, um, surrendering words, but are they just words? Are they, are they songs that we sing on a Sunday morning and then we go home? Or do they reflect our lives? Are we actually willing, like Abraham, to take the things in our lives that are most important to us and place them on the altar as evidence of our faith? To take those things that we attach the most value to, our career, our financial security, our comfortable lifestyle, our own achievements, and say, God, if you want me to bring the knife down on those things, I will do it. God, I will, in an instant, do away with these things. If they undermine you, if they, in some way, even if, God, it's just what you ask me to do, in a way I don't understand, but if you call me to do it, Lord, I will do it. Are we willing to have that level of surrender, where we truly place things on the altar and surrender them to God. Maybe there's an area of your life that is not surrendered to God, that you've just, you have been kind of holding it back, and you say, no, this, this God is, my, I'm going to make my decisions this way. This is an area of life that's off limits to you. And God says, well, what kind of faith do you have then? What kind of faith? You stand here in church, you sing these songs, you've got a Christian worldview, that's great. But do you have a faith that's truly surrendered? Am I truly Lord in your life? Because if I am, that's going to mean some hard choices. If I am, that may mean some sacrifice, as it meant sacrifice for Abraham. Are we truly willing to do that? Become living sacrifices and place the various areas of our life on the altar and surrender them to God. That's genuine faith. That's living faith. It's not easy, though, is it? It's hard. It's what God calls us to do. And then finally, a contemporary example of living faith. Uh, this last week marked the uh, anniversary of the death of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, a German pastor and theologian. And he embodies for me the kind of faith that James is calling us to have. Bonhoeffer lived during World War II, during the Nazi regime, and it was a time when, when many Christians, most Christians, most churches, were just going along with Nazism, going along with Nazi ideology. It's, it's appalling as we look back on it, but you've got to ask the question, what would you do back in those days? Would we have just implicitly, complicitly gone along with it as Nazism infected the church? Well, Bonhoeffer said no. And he became a leader in what's known as the Confessing Church Movement, which was a resistance movement. A minority of Christians and churches joined it, but it was a movement that said, we're not going to have Hitler as the head of the church, which was effectively what was happening. Uh, we're not going to have the church dictated to by the state, and we're certainly not going to adopt Nazi ideology. We're going to live out a different way of being human. We're going to live out our faith authentically, and we're going to be the church. And Bonhoeffer did this, and he taught in confessing church seminaries, and he led Christians in these underground church movements at huge expense, at huge cost to himself, eventually his life. He was imprisoned by the Nazis. He was executed eventually by the Nazis just before World War II ended. But through that struggle, I mean, here's a man who put his faith into action. He could have maintained his faith, but still said, oh, I'm, you know, it's not for me to intervene or whatever. But he put his faith into action. 
and lived it out, a living, vibrant, suffering, struggling faith that was prepared to sacrifice. And in the midst of his struggle, he wrote a little book called The Cost of Discipleship. It's a wonderful book. It's a challenging book. It's well worth a read if you get a chance. It's become a real classic. And in that book, he contrasts what he calls costly grace with cheap grace. And I think in this context, we could probably substitute the word faith for grace, because we're talking about faith this morning. So as I read this, think about what he talks about, cheap grace, costly grace. You think about cheap faith, costly faith. Here's what he says. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. Costly grace is the kingly rule of Christ, for whose sake a man will pluck out the eye that causes him to stumble. Such grace is costly because it calls us to follow. And it is grace because it calls us to follow Jesus Christ. And I pray that that's the kind of faith that we would have. The kind of faith Bonhoeffer had. The kind of faith Abraham had. The kind of faith both James and Paul call us to have. A faith that is genuinely trusting in Christ as our all-sufficient Savior. Never compromising that. Never adding anything to the sufficiency of Jesus as our Savior. No effort, no works, no deeds can ever, ever add to what Christ has done. We've got to be clear on that. We've got to live that out. But also a faith that is genuinely surrendered to Jesus as Lord and trusts Him not just in word but in action so that we put our faith into practice and we live it out and Jesus lives His life through us. May we be Christians. May we be a church that truly has faith in Jesus as both Savior and Lord and lives that out through all the deeds of the Christian life. Let's pray. Father, we hear uh, the challenging words that James has written to us this morning and we want to take them to heart. God, I pray that uh, nothing that I've said this morning would ever lead to legalism. I pray that nothing I've said today would ever leave us with guilt or despair. I pray that nothing I've said today would ever lead us into condemnation. I pray that nothing I've said would, would, would be a burden to any person here, Lord, but would be a word that brings freedom. Your word, Lord Jesus. We know that your intention is not to burden us with guilt, but to set us free by your Spirit so that you can live the fullness of your life through us. And I want to pray, Lord Jesus, that you would help us to open our hearts to you wide enough that you would search us and show us the kind of faith we truly have. Whether it's a, a dead faith that's just got belief and a little bit of trust, or whether it's truly a living faith that is alive and is expressing itself in action in our own lives, in our families and workplaces and neighborhoods. God, we know, we know, we stumble and fall every single day. And we are so flawed and so sinful. But we pray, Lord Jesus, that you would help us to be the people James calls us to be, where faith is made complete by our actions and fulfilled in our lives where we seek to genuinely follow after you. We thank you, God, that all this is only possible because of what you have done for us in Jesus. And so we just finish by giving praise to you, 
that our salvation is fully accomplished on the cross. And we pray that our journey of obedience in our lives would be by grace from beginning to end. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. This has been a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more of our teaching resources, or to donate to our teaching resource ministry, or for more information on Shaw Community Church, visit www.shaw.org.nz. Alternatively, you can email office at shaw.org.nz or phone 09 415 0455. Thank you for listening.